much tuning into this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from episode number 410 with Sean Maishka, and we have a little chat around a hypothetical coaching session, which is there to develop change direction. Uh, it's pretty basic, and I put it to Sean of how that could be made more specific to what goes on on the pitch on game day, how it can be developed to actually have some transference onto the field and hopefully give the athlete a little bit more enjoyment than just running around cones. But just before we do dive into this episode with Sean, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you're looking for a free solution to be able to collect analyze, visualize, and present days to coaches, check out AMS Lite from Rock Daisy at rockdaisy.com. So you've talked a lot about the environment. I think now would be a great time to throw a little example in there and just see how you would change things. So using that um, individual drill base, cl- closed close drill that you mentioned that you, you've seen sometimes online, or a lot online. So ch- change direction, for example, running between two cones and checking right and left, getting the perfect body position for to, to optimize the performance, but get them in a position where they're not in risk of potential injury, et cetera, et cetera. So we've done that very close drill. They're going left, they're going right. So that's the kind of one end of the spectrum. How would we make our way as a coach more towards the end of the spectrum that you're talking about? I love the question because Hmm. now we're really going to see some practical relevance here or hopefully some practical application. The first question or the first filter I would put this through is how can we immediately inject more aliveness into the problem, right? If we're viewing sport movement behavior as a problem solving activity, how can we actually turn this into a problem that has dimensional levels to it? And how can we require more from the behavioral organization of the movement system with perceptions and cognitions or intentions and decisions that need to be made, right? So the first thing I do in my world or in my environment, cones are usually just boundaries, okay? If a cone isn't an activity, it's probably not my workspace, okay? (laughs) So um, even the only thing worse than that, the only thing worse than a cone is an agility ladder, (laughs) but I digress. Um, So we would remove those cones, especially because usually when we see that happening, Rob, particularly the videos that I've been sending out over the last week, week and a half here of NFL practices, what do we see behind the athlete who's going and rehearsing that technical model? We see a line of athletes waiting to go. We see coaches who are yelling from the side, right? Good, good, good. Go faster. Do this, do that here. No, not this, right? They're inundating them with information where the athlete doesn't get a chance to connect to their own information about how that environment might be changing because the environment in and of itself isn't changing, right? The problem isn't changing. And that's the thing. Like if we can get there to be a mutual reciprocal exchange of information between an alive problem, it doesn't have to be overly chaotic or overly complex. Just have likely some moving bodies within it or athletes within it that an you know that the athlete who's going has to become sensitive or attuned to because those moving bodies in the space they afford their bearing angles their speed their kinematics and their posture will all dictate the behavior of the athlete who's going through the drill 
Okay. And so like the drill word is one that never gets used in my environment. In fact, if a player utters it, like the rest of the players in the group are like basically throwing him, you know, throwing water on him. Like, no, no, the drill, the dreaded D word is not used here. We want a live learning activities. And so just to go across that spectrum, just a little bit, remove the cones and add some aliveness, put bodies there, bodies that may change behaviors ever so slightly. J.J. Gibson, sort of one of the fathers of ecological psychology, coined this idea that behavior affords behavior. What does that mean? How one person acts in the world will offer us opportunities for how we may be able to act, right? And the organization of our movement behavior is dependent on our connection to that other individual's behaviors. So again, we don't need a ton of messiness, but we likely need either an opponent and or a teammate in the space, right? We might be getting attuned or sensitive to the posture and kinematics of the immediate opponent that is coming to us, telling us where we can cut, when we can cut, how we have to adjust and change our cut to be in relation to the opponent, right? Maybe it's a teammate and we're becoming sensitive and attuned to their back as they come into the space to block another opponent, right? So things like interpersonal distance to that individual, us being able to perceive and read and recognize how they may be attempting to move is going to be highly factoring into the channeling of our own movement behavior, right? One, the, I mentioned mixed martial arts earlier, right? And one of the things that I often find really fascinating there is that these individuals are accustomed to having adaptability and attunement within their practice activities, right? Now, we still see some pretty crappy stuff where they're just hitting the bag and doing things in an isolated fashion. But what, when it comes to a fighter who has a highly sophisticated type of style, an Anderson Silva, an Israel Adesanya, like we see them highly sensitive to interpersonal distances. We see them highly sensitive to um, fainting and faking in aspects of their decision-making that are going to shape their intentions or their ways that they could potentially act. We see them often like with eyes wide open, picking up information sources about the nuances of their opponent. But then in most sports that are happening on a field, we don't see that quite as much unless we see it naturally emerge, say in like a Barry Sanders type of fashion, right? Where all of a sudden the problem was so chaotic for him. He thought to himself, like, it's them or me. Like, I got to perfect the art of making this guy miss right here, right now. Otherwise that guy's taking my head off. I'm 200 pounds. He's 260. Like that's, those are some constraints that are channeling the behavior, right? But my, I understand that I'm kind of going around and around in a circle here, but I'm trying to paint a picture for people out there that these are the realities of movement behavior in the competitive environment. How do we inject more aliveness within any activity so it looks, feels, acts, and behaves more like sport? Notice I didn't say it has to be identical. The most representative problem for me and, and the players I partner with is an 11 v 11, but we don't often exist there because they can't always handle that information that amount of information from that complexity, we might have to scale it down to 1v1, 1v2, 2v2, 3v3, more small-sided game-like activities that we could all easily do if we just inject some aliveness. And then what we find there, Rob, is 
Again, we use Bernstein's idea of repetition without repetition. What, what does that mean? Essentially a variability within the problem, there's a liveness, and variability within this integrated movement solution, meaning how perceptions, cognitions, and actions are gonna be intertwined and interwoven together to form this behavioral organization that we see. We see that the athlete is then given the opportunity to explore and search their toolbox a bit. You know, like what I would have loved to seen from you when you couldn't find the red pen is shake out all the pens, close your eyes and grab one. That's the one you're using. That can be nervous you know just I mean? thinking about that, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's probably some people that are listening who maybe exist within one of those similar realms that would be almost sweating bullets for you, right? And so like, we think a lot about soft assembly, softly assembling the practice activities we're gonna use, right? As opposed to being a dictator. We're thinking about what we're hoping to channel within the movement problem solving process. But on that given day, we might find other opportunities where we can aim to educate the athlete's attention or perceptions. We can aim to educate their intentions and how they may aim to interact with that problem. And we just give them more exposure, more experience. And usually what comes up out of that, Rob, is number one, abundance, or in an ecological dynamics term, we call it degeneracy, which I don't really like that word because my mom used to call me a degenerate for many other reasons. Um, <laughs> and some people out there might be calling me that right now too. But I think about abundance, just having more potential strategies and solutions to solve similar behaving problems. And once we can chase abundance of strategies, we find that there isn't one way that they have to behave. And if they don't have just one way that they have to behave when they're presented with a problem, they're more likely to find themselves in an adaptable or dexterous state, the expression of dexterity, right? So we got to have an abundance of strategies or solutions that are potential for us because we don't know what that problem is going to offer us. Like we might think we know, but again, the reality is no two problems are ever the same in context of that problem shapes the content that is that movement solution, right? And so if we're gonna try to dictate as to how that player will move, but we don't know anything about the problem, like that shows a tremendous disrespect of the complexity of the sporting world, right? It, it, like for us to think we know the way that someone needs to move when we don't know what it is that the environment is gonna be asking of them, in order when to move, how to move, where to move, et cetera, right? So hopefully I've taken some, some ideas and shooken them up a bit and then spread them out throughout the table. There's probably a lot of different directions we could go from here. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip came from episode number 410 and you can listen to the full episode on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time.